Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Mark. I want to welcome you to our sermon this morning. Appreciate the music of the team this morning. And now I want to look to a continuing series on the invisible war. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness has been mentioned earlier. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read just a couple of verses leading into verse 14. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the pieces of the armor, these things which remind us of what you have given us in Christ in the midst of this conflict that we are engaged in as your children. Lord, this incredible gift of the breastplate of righteousness and all this means, I pray that you would open us our hearts, that we can hear, that we can learn, that we can grow because of our uh, the teaching of your word on this subject today. In Jesus' name, amen. Albert Camus, a existentialist writer, has written a book. I've mentioned it a couple of times in the past. It is called The Fall. It's the story, it's a short book. Uh, it's a story of a generous lawyer. Uh, he is a Parisian, French. His name is Jean-Baptiste Clemence. And he was loved for doing pro bono work. He continually did his work for free among the poor. Uh, he was one who was looked at highly and appreciated much within the city. But one day, he was on a bridge at night. And while he was there, he realized that a woman had climbed up on the railing and had jumped into the river below. And he hears her, and as she hits the water, apparently she, she re immediately regrets what she's done, and she starts crying for help, and as the current is taking her down, uh, he stands there, and he refuses to move. He knows he should, he knows he can jump in, he could probably save her, but he fails to help her. And as he's there, of course, he, he, he's thinking about all of the... Uh, the rationales of why he didn't jump in and, and uh, she was too far away, it was too quick. Uh, she, he, he's a lawyer after all, he, he knows how these things go, that it's better to not get involved uh, a lot of times in situations. But he's struck with his own hypocrisy because he recognizes that the bottom line was he didn't care enough about her to risk himself. And when this reality is dawning on him, in the story, he hears a, a mocking, derisive laugh coming from behind him. And this particular laugh is uh, resonating with his own feeling of, I'm a phony, I'm, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. He looks around, there's no one there. Over the next few weeks, and then it 
migrates into months. He has a number of situations where he is realizing his own hypocrisy. And in each of those events, the, the mocking, derisive laughter is there accusing him, saying to him, you're a phony, you're a hypocrite, you're not what you pretend to be. And the accusing voice of the mocking laugh eventually just eats, alive, eats him alive and he eventually falls into a life of despair and debauchery in the face of his own self-condemnation. He cannot overcome and silence the mocking voice of accusation. We have been talking about the invisible war on Sundays together. We have been talking about this spiritual conflict that takes place between the devil and those that are called in these verses the spiritual forces of evil as they wage war against God and against God's children. Satan is the great accuser. The word Satan actually means uh, prosecutor. He delights to point out our inconsistencies and transgressions. He delights to be the mocking voice, laughing when we are on the bridge of our own failures and inconsistencies. No one here avoids the voice of accusation and condemnation. We are afflicted by it because the voice tends to resonate with the very things that we say to ourselves. It echoes our own feelings. His temptations and accusations that the devil brings follow parallel tracks with the distinct orientation of our own sinful nature and flesh. He accuses us in the same areas we accuse and condemn ourselves. Jean-Baptiste Clamanche was scarred by the accusation in the mocking laughter because it affirmed the voice declaring his own inadequacy to himself. This is an incredibly important piece of armor. The breastplate of righteousness. It's so important I'm actually going to take two weeks to talk about it. Today, I'd like to talk about why we need a breastplate. We'll also look at faults or, or pseudo-breastplates we tend to use to repel the terrible accusations we hear. Next Sunday, God willing, we'll talk about the true breastplate, breastplate and the difference it can make in our lives. Now, last week, Pastor Mike talked about the belt of truth, the first piece of the, piece of the armor, the one that, that went around you, and, and actually this leather belt, often leather, uh, the other parts of the armor, as he mentioned, would be clipped to it, that it held things together. It is the truth, the belt of truth, the truth that we find in Christ. All the other aspects of the armor fastened to it. It is the truth of what we have and who we are in Christ that is the foundation for all of the other defenses that the armor brings to us. Today, first of all, I want to talk about why we need a breastplate. And we need a breastplate, first of all, because it protects our emotional center. The breastplate covered, often they actually came over your shoulders, but at least went from here all the way down to your midsection, lower midsection, the breastplate 
protects our emotional center. It, it covered the vital organs of an individual. Now for us, the vital organ that is the center of our emotional life is the heart. For the ancients in the ancient Near East, they tend to say it was the upper intestines, both of which are covered uh, by the breastplate. And the idea is that we are protected on an emotional level from the charges and the attacks that come to our emotional well-being. Secondly, it, as a result of that, addresses our inherent, consistent failure to measure up. This is the voice that we hear. This is the, the mocking laugh that is so powerful in our lives. This particular reality in understanding why accusations bother us, we, we, we've got to understand what it is that we are accused of and where it comes from. All of us deal with the struggle to be acceptable. We struggle to feel worthy, worthy of love, worthy of respect, worthy of being listened to. To determine our worthiness, we are constantly comparing ourselves with other people. We're constantly comparing our attractiveness or our brains or our abilities or our success or our relationships or our homes or our, our physiques against others. We hate then being on the, the mathematical formula. We hate being a less than. We want to be on the, on the right side of the, of the V. We want to be on the greater than side because we are inherently, consistently comparing ourselves. And when we feel a less than or we feel that we, the arrow's pointing our way, we feel condemned. We feel the accusation of less than. We're not worthy. A guy may say, you may be out there and you may say, I don't really struggle with that. I mean, if anything, I'm too confident. Well, I would suggest to you everybody struggles with this. Everybody hears the voices no matter if you're a very opinionated person, a lot of times people that they're most bombastic, the most critical of others, the most uh, intimidating of others are, are doing that to totally protect themselves. They'll, they'll knock everybody else down in order to not let themselves look bad. Politicians or political aides are consumed with approval ratings. Teens are striving to fit in to measure up, to cope with unreasonable, overwhelming expectations of grades and physical attractiveness, social skills, and athletic or other areas of expertise. They feel they need to have it all to be in. Many of you have been watching The Last Dance, the 10-episode the ESPN special on the Chicago Bulls 1998 season. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I love it. Uh, but it was an interesting study for me who, Michael Jordan is absolutely my favorite, bas my, not my favorite, he, I believe he's the best basketball player that's ever played. Larry Bird's my guy. Maybe because he can't jump either. But, but Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player I've ever seen play. But it was striking to me as I watched this, and I'm not in any way dissing anybody, not wanting to, but my, I, what I w was struck with as I watched this, this ultra-competitive, astonishing, competitive, and driven man, I also saw a man that was discontent. I also saw a man with, that was consumed with the fact 
22 years later that he didn't get a chance to get his seventh NBA championship ring. That what we call drive in people is usually the response to the mocking voices that say, you're not enough if you're not a winner. You're not enough if if you're not this. You've got to be loved or be admired or be approved or be feared or be a winner to be worthy. And there is intolerable, intolerable shame if we are not. So here's the question. Where did this come from? Where did this sense of, of, of drive and, and passion and, and why we are so vulnerable to accusations when we feel that we are on the less, less than side of something that matters to us? I would suggest to you that it goes all the way back to the beginning of recorded history in what is called the Garden of Eden. It is the product of sin in the human race. Adam and Eve did not ever struggle with low self-esteem. They did not strive to be greater thans. They were not comparative or discontent. They were at peace and they were satisfied. They worked hard. They had active lives. They weren't just uh, sitting around in a cloud strumming or just, you know, hanging out and talking to the animals. I mean, they worked. They were energized. They planned. They landscaped. You know, whatever they did in the garden, they did it with gusto and energy. There was contentment and energy, but they were free from the accusing voices in their own head until they fell into sin. Sin brought it about, and Satan was correct in something he said. He said, you will know what you don't know now if you take of this tree of of knowledge. And he was right. They now knew. They knew a sense of shame. They knew a sense of comparativeness. They knew a sense of not being enough. They knew what it felt like to not be worthy. The result is they tried to hide their shame where they had been free and in nakedness and no embarrassment. Now they tried to hide their vulnerability, their sense of inadequacy, their their failure. And fig leaves is just a way to try to protect them from the gaze of God and even to some degree the gaze of each other. When they chose to not live contentedly in the approval of God, they began to search elsewhere for lesser approvals that would never leave them content. And so do we. What they now felt was this, my behavior, my actions, my very self are no longer acceptable. I no longer measure up. Ultimately, they felt shame before God. They felt inadequate in the presence of God. See, all of your efforts to please your parents, at getting in the right school, at being successful, at being beautiful, at being a greater than, are ultimately an effort at covering up that deep sense of unpresentability Because we know that God is not pleased with us, we know that we fall short. We all live for a good verdict. We live for approval. We live for the ability to be accepted by somebody. 
Now, you may be out there and say, wow, that is a big step that you're saying that, you know, my struggle of, uh, of the fact that I didn't make the basketball team and how bad I feel about myself is ultimately because I feel God doesn't approve of me. What I'm saying is that sense of struggle, that sense of, of needing to define and, and find our satisfaction in, in an identity is because sin has created a spirit of, of of discontentment, of inadequacy, of a need of a verdict that I am in fact worthy, ultimately, completely worthy. And the breastplate of righteousness is all about bringing a different verdict to our lives. We all live for that good verdict. Where do you look for approval and acceptance? I'll guarantee that is where you hear the voice of accusation and condemnation. The third thing we find is this. We need a breastplate because it addresses the unceasing voice of accusation and condemnation. The breastplate of God gives protection from the accusation that condemns and pains us. There are mocking whispers of Satan. They can be spiritual. They can be statements like, um, your hardships are proof of God's discipline and judgment that he's not really for you. They can be spiritual in the sense they say your sins and failures are, are proof that you're out of favor with God and unsuitable to Him. But they also can be our, our natural life, our general life, not just the, the vertical relationship. Your perceived deficiencies are proof you are unacceptable to God. Probably don't think about it vertically as often as we do about our own evaluations, the evaluations of our peers. The common thread in all of our struggles is we, are, we feel we are not worthy. We are not adequate. Again, they will usually be the mocking reiteration of what we already feel that we will hear these voices. So what do we do? How do we compensate for this, this sense of shame, this sense of a verdict that we're not worthy? How do we, in a practical way, what do we try to do? Well, all of us are trying to put a breastplate on. All, nobody wants to hear, I'm a less than. Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of the arrow. Nobody wants to live their life being, being hearing the voice. So, so what do we do? We try to protect ourselves. We all have breastplates. What we attempt to use as a breastplate, first of all, is secular breastplates. These are just, just common things in our lives. We all put on breastplates to protect ourselves against the accusations of our inadequacy, our sense of inadequacy and failure. Ultimately, we're trying to find a way to measure up. There are all kinds of different things people use in our culture. It can be the, um, our success at our job. It can be have it, trying to have a, a beautiful home, at least beautiful compared to other people. Our education and our grades, uh, having body beautiful can be in our own families that we find our, 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 the verdict that we're a worthwhile person because, well, after all, our family's doing well, or we love our kids, or whatever. It can be all kinds of things. But success in these areas did not really protect us from the accusations of our lack of approval, acceptance, and adequacy. They just don't satisfy. The result is that we find ourselves 
living our lives with breastplates that let us down. I remember many of you have watched the movie um, Chariots of Fire, and, and the guy in the movie, there are two stars in the movie. One is Eric Little, who is the guy who's running from Scotland, and he eventually goes to be a missionary, gives his life there um, for Christ. The other guy is, is an individual, Harold Abraham. And Harold Abraham, and it's the true story of the 1924 Olympics, and Harold Abraham is a runner and a very driven guy, and basically his identity is, is, is a speed. And he can't afford to lose. And at different vignettes in the story, you see one time where he actually loses a race. It's, it's not a 100 meter, but he stumbles and his timing is off. He doesn't run well. And he's devastated until a guy comes and says, look, I can, I can shave a few tenths of a second off. And so he has hope that, well, okay, I won't ever have to lose again. He finally does go to the 1924 Olympics. And as they go over to France and they're at the Olympics, He's running, and he runs the 200-yard dash, and he gets beat. And he's devastated, but fortunately, he's still got the 100-yard to go. And he finally runs the 100-yard dash, and he wins. And he wins the gold medal, and one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is that night in a, in a little French restaurant. There's nobody there. The place is empty. The guy is... Uh, uh, trying to clean up, and he's got all the chairs folded up, and here they are sitting in this little bar, or little uh, restaurant with a bar, and it's he and his trainer, the guy's twice his age, and they're there, and it's this, this sorrowful, sad scene where it should be a celebratory thing, but he's very reflective, he's, he's melancholic and depressed because he's finally tasted the victory is the fastest man in the world. He won the 100-yard dash at the Olympics. And it does not satisfy. The breastplate didn't work. It still didn't give him the definition that he wanted to have. There are other forms of breastplates that we can have. There are spiritual ones. These spiritual breastplates, are, Paul talked about in Philippians 3. He said, you know, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, I was the top dog of all the Pharisees. I was the most zealous, the most fanatical. I fasted more than everybody else. I did more. I was the one that, that you know, uh, that, that, that persecuted the Christians because it was the right thing to do. He said, but what happened was one day, he said, as I was striving to uh, find my identity and, and, and be worthy, and have a verdict of, of, of worthiness and acceptability in my spiritual life. I was studying the commandment number 10, don't covet. And I realized that, that my desire to be spiritual, my desire to, to appear zealous, was totally self-absorbed. That I was, I was totally selfish in every part of my life. And, and in saying I was living a selfless life for God, it was all about me. In the, in the book, The Fall, one of the striking realities that Jean-Baptiste is facing that was so overwhelming to him was that he came to see his selfless acts as a lawyer doing pro bono stuff were, were actually all about him. He gives one example. He says, 
I, I would actually escort a blind man across the street. And then I would, I would tip my hat to him. And he said, I, I, I realized I wasn't tipping my hat to him. He couldn't see my hat. I was doing it for the crowd to draw attention to my action and to the graciousness of my behavior. And he heard the mocking laugh of hypocrisy and not what you say. What he was finding, his, his own spiritual fervor and works did not provide a real breastplate against the accusation that he didn't measure up. His works could not secure him approval. It can be spiritual things. It can be Christian things as well as, as our job accomplishments or how much money we make that we try to find our approval. So what can secure the verdict of, of approval, the verdict of worthiness, the verdict of acceptability? What can be a breastplate against the accusations that say we are not enough? Well, some of you are here and are listening and knowing that you are driven by the voices that accuse you. Voices that are declaring to you in one statement or another, you're no good. You'll never be enough. You're unlovely. You're unlovable. You'll never really make a difference. And maybe you've never considered the fact that your emotional struggles are rooted in a spiritual dimension. Your hunger to be worthy to be adequate, to be acceptable, ultimately is the cry for God, for His forgiveness, for His grace, for His verdict of acceptance. You'll never earn it. You'll never deserve it. But God has given it freely in His Son. And when a person embraces Christ as their Savior, their whole lives, they're, they're now growing to live out. What does it mean to have this verdict of acceptability that I don't have to live on the grid? That we stand accepted in Christ. And next week we'll talk more about what it means to be wearing a breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean? How does that affect our daily living? How do we put that on and, 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 and defend our hearts against the accusations against the voices, the mocking voices. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for righteousness that is our breastplate. We thank You for Christ. It is in Jesus that we find even such practical benefit of silencing the voices of that we struggle with, many of us, every day. Lord, we thank You for journeying with us, that You love us, that You have come among us, that we might have an acceptance that is a verdict that frees us from the treadmill of, of trying to be a greater than. God, teach us how to do that in, in the righteousness of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.